The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 16, Texas War for Independence. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome back. Before we get started, I am recording this on the day after Christmas, 2018, and I would like to wish all of you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. If you aren't Christian or you don't celebrate Christmas, then allow me to wish you a Happy Holidays. By the time this show is released, it will be January 1st, 2019, and I really hope you've had not only a fantastic 2018, but I truly do hope 2019 is even better. Also, I'd like to thank you for listening to the show. I hope you are finding it both interesting and valuable. If so, please do me a huge favor, give us a five-star rating, and, if you have time, a review. This really does help people find the show. If you have suggestions for improvement, then please feel free to email them to me. The email is sean, S-H-A-W-N, at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. Also, if you're into the social media thing, we don't have a Facebook page, but I am on Twitter. Please follow me there at American Hiscast. So before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out to the listeners who have given us a review. H. Brogan gave us a great review, mentioning how he or she wishes they had been taught history like this. Honestly, it's easier to do this than it is to teach a course in the public system, where you have all of these rules about the number of assignments you have to give every week, what you have to cover, things like that. Here, I can just give you a narrative and not worry about what some bureaucrat thinks. The next review is also five stars and comes from No Music, who says they appreciate the podcast, especially as it isn't boring. Thank you, No Music. Raider Sky was our first negative review of two stars. They mentioned that episode 13 of season one had some questionable sound. I re-recorded that episode, so hopefully the sound is better. I wish Raider had emailed me about the problem, but either way, the problem is fixed. So hopefully our sound is now up to your standards. Co. Eric gave us a four-star review mentioning that I needed some polishing. Now, I admit, I do get a little nervous when that microphone is in front of me. I'm actually very relaxed in front of an audience, but for some reason, when it's just me and the microphone, um, I find it very intimidating. Hopefully, though, our narrative is getting better. Next, we have C. Krubby, who mentions that while I don't, they don't always agree with me, um, they appreciate that I'm as objective as possible and that I reference other historians. You're welcome, C. Krubby. Skins fan in 661 also gave us a five-star review. Thank you very much. And finally, for today, we have a five-star review from Wisconsin Appraiser, I think is what it is. Um, This was a fantastic review, and I appreciate it very much. Okay, so as we get started on this episode, let me just warn you, this one is a fairly large episode. I know I've been dragging this out, but I really want you to understand the lead-up to the war, and I want you to have a solid understanding of both antebellum U.S. history as well as Texas history um, during this time period. So I've been trying very hard to make each episode 20 to 25 minutes long, but this one is going to break that rule. So buckle your seatbelts. Now, as we saw at the end of episode 15, Mexican authorities were slowly becoming aware of the threat posed to the northern frontier by the large presence of Anglos in Texas, many of whom owned slaves. 
The situation became more tenuous when, in 1829, uh, Mexico abolished slavery. According to historian Gary Clayton Anderson, whom we've referenced several times, political disorder abounded throughout the region, and the military situation was even worse. Remember, Mexico had trouble providing the needed troops to protect the region. Thus, they invited in Anglo settlers. At Nacogdoches, they supposedly had 160 infantrymen 60 dra- and 60 dragoons, but the garrison was rarely at full strength. Furthermore, they often lacked supplies, such as clothing and ammunition. On the other hand, the United States had 700 troops stationed at Fort Jessup, just on the other side of the border, and most, if not all, of the Anglo settlers in East Texas possessed firearms. Colonel José de las Piedras, the commander of the Mexican garrison, estimated that the Anglos could easily collect 3,000 men in just a few days. Thus, East Texas was extremely vulnerable. Now, adding to the problem was the Indian issue. Again, as we have mentioned before, Indian tribes who were being kicked out of the United States uh, southeast region were streaming into what is today Oklahoma and Texas. One of the things the Mexicans realized was that it was best to have continual discussions with the Indian peoples. In fact, talks had been taking place since 1827, and by 1829, things were starting to look up. In general, the Cherokees agreed to maintain the peace, as did the Shawnee. Indeed, at least one Shawnee chief said, quote, the enemies of the Mexicans are enemies of ours, end quote. Now, how did they achieve this? By promising the Indians land. That's how they did it. However, as you can probably imagine, there was one catch. One monkey wrench, of course, which gummed up the works. And that's the Plains Indians. They had rejected the peace. Now, it's a bit complicated, but the northern Comanche, combined with some Wacos and some Wichita tribe members, um, and they basically promised to be uh, causing trouble for the Mexicans. And that is just what happened when, in March of 1829, a party of Wacos and Wichita struck a small Anglo settlement southwest of Austin's settlements, stealing some horses. Now, if you've read enough history, especially the history of European and Indian interactions, one of the things you realize is that often the reason fighting breaks out is there's a lack of understanding about the differences between groups. In other words, Europeans tended to see one group of Indians when, in fact, there might be two or more distinct groups. In this instance, the Mexican official in question, a General Bustamante, ordered the destruction of a group of Wichitas. Now, oddly enough, This was the peaceful group, which had signed a treaty in San Antonio in 1827 and was still abiding by its rules. It was a group of Wichitas, um, a different group of Wichitas, the Talvayas, who lived further north along the Red River. They were the ones who were causing trouble. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the the weeds here, but it is worth noting that a Colonel Ruiz took a small force made up of Mexican troops and Anglos out into the field. They first came upon a group of Wichita Waco uh, and Wacos whom the Anglos wanted to kill, but luckily the colonel was able to prevent violence, thus preserving the peace treaty. Ruiz had learned that the northern Comanches were in contact with the uh, the Talvayas Wichita, a group that had built newly fortified towns to the north and the west. Now the the Anglos they wanted to destroy the Waco party, and Ruiz's reluctance to do so caused them to leave the group in outrage. However, interestingly enough, Ruiz proved that he knew what he was talking about. He figured the Wichitas, not the Wacos, were responsible. Why? The Indian party was mobile, and it had horses. 
before the Indians withdrew Ruiz tried to placate them, arguing it would be better to attack these northern Indians in the fall when, the, when they returned home to harvest their crops. Now, while this plan was rejected at the time, his, event, his advice would eventually become standard Texas Ranger policy. Over the next two years, war came to the Wacos and the Tawakani. Mexican, Anglo, and Cherokee forces devastated these groups. Um, Rangers, they would eventually become the Texas Rangers, began the process of what Anderson calls ethnic cleansing. Mexican authorities would take things further, often because they either could not or would not distinguish between the different native groups, attacking Indians wherever they could, and often they decimated not only enemies but allies. To make matters worse, at the height of the war, American traders introduced smallpox into the Wichita communities. This, of course, was disastrous for the communities, and it was particularly difficult on their young. In the end, the Southern Waco, the Tawakoni Wichita Band, um, they were decimated by what was, in essence, a decade of war and pestilence. Their numbers went from approximately 3,000 to about half that amount. Now, Mexican General Manuel Mier Iteran, whom we mentioned last episode, he had troops who played a significant role in punishing the Wichita, and he had hoped to see North Texas become peaceful and productive. To help bring this about, he wrote a report addressing the many problems which remained along the northern border. He called for the reinforcement of military garrisons, as well as a plan of counter-colonization, which would help balance out the increasing number of Anglo-Americans, with settlers coming in from Germany, Switzerland, and Mexico itself. Further, he recognized the fact that Texas was becoming more and more tied to the United States economically. To counter this, he proposed policies to expand coastal shipping to easily pass from Mexican ports to the new ports of Brazoria and Galveston in Texas. Teran, as you've probably noted by now, was an intelligent leader. Not only did he issue this report, but he also began selecting strategic locations to place military posts. Soon, there were three new forts and over a thousand Mexican soldiers added to the province's totals. This strategy seemed to be the right one, and seemed to have been implemented just in time. In the United States, Andrew Jackson began expressing an interest in purchasing Texas. Now, whatever Jackson thought the reaction would be to this interest, it was far worse. Mexican President Bustamante, taking office in 1830, he was a centralist, an advocate of central authority, and he was infuriated by this idea. Instead, he took Teran's recommendations and forwarded to the Mexican Congress with the added point of noting that American immigration into Texas should be ended. So this became law on April 6, 1830, and all, all of the unfulfilled empresario contracts were now terminated. Obviously, both, both Bustamante and Teran believed the Federalist experiment of allowing Americans to immigrate into Mexico was sheer folly, and it was now time to end this program. Ironically, just as the Mexican Congress moved to shut off American immigration, speculation in Texas lands increased to epic proportions. Amongst the motivators was um, one, at least one company. This one was the Galveston Bay and Texas Land Company. They had no intention of selling to farmers in Texas. Instead, they offered stock to sale to the public, as well as land scrip, which entitled the owner to take up land in East Texas. So in the United States, land speculators flooded the market, selling land to potential settlers at prices that ranged anywhere from 5 to 10 cents an acre, which back in those days could add up. Texans themselves complained that the government in Mexico City 
was changing the rules arbitrarily, and those rules affected the lives of the people in Texas. Many of these people believed that by shutting off immigration into Texas, the province was guaranteed to forever remain a frontier society. Many of the people who had immigrated to Texas did so under the belief that other Americans would follow. In their minds, soon Texas would resemble the settled regions back east. They wanted all of the accoutrement of settled life, markets and services and stable life. Right now, Texas did not truly provide that, and with the government outlawing immigration, it may never do so. I mentioned the plan to counter the balance to counterbalance the rising Anglo power in Texas. The main part of this plan was not based on European immigration. Instead, it was based on giving land to natives. Theron ordered that Cherokees, Shawnees, and Delawares be given tribal land grants. Shawnee and even some Kickapoo Indians were also granted land. Not every Indian tribe was granted land, though. The Creeks, the Chickasaws, the Choctaws, the Choctaws, the Caddos, and, of course, Wichita were not given land. So denying them land legally was one thing, but making this a reality was something else. In the United States, the Congress had passed an Indian removal bill, if you remember, and soon 20,000 Creeks would be forced out of the United States. Where would they go? Further, what about the hatred between different Indian bands? Ruiz had used promises of land to recruit Cherokee, Shawnee, and Delaware war parties to his cause. So there is even a case in which he informed the Shawnee of the presence of a Comanche trading party in the vicinity of San Antonio, a location which was technically neutral ground. Now, bitter enemies, the Shawnee ended up surprising the Comanche just six miles north of the city and slaughtered them. Killing approximately 100 Indians, the mass of bodies was so large that wolves ended up feeding on the carcasses for days. Needless to say, this wasn't going to make the Mexicans any friends amongst the Plains tribes. So, for a short time in the 1830s, it appeared Mexico had found the answer. The Comanche defeat led to confidence amongst the Indian tribes, particularly the Cherokee, the Shawnee, and the Delaware. Even the Tejano population of San Antonio got in on the act, taking up a collection of money to help buy gunpowder and lead for their Indian allies. And for about two years, things did improve. However, Mexican weakness meant Theron had embraced a near-genocidal war, one waged mostly against the Wichita. Further, it depended on a group of six immigrant Indian bands, a group whose loyalties and populations were known to shift. Needless to say, this was a dangerous policy, both politically and militarily. However, for the moment, things were looking up. There was a boundary commission that was demarcating the boundary between the two countries, and Mexican and American negotiators had worked out an agreement known as the Treaty of Amity, Commerce, and Navigation, which was signed by both countries in 1831. Concerned mostly with the growing trade on the Santa Fe Trail, it also dealt with the issue of native peoples. Neither party could devise a plan which would end the violence Indians inflicted upon both American and Mexican teamsters and the horse traders who were using the trail. In the end, both countries agreed to prevent their Indians from attacking the other. Crucially, the two could enter each other's territory to carry out this mission. Now, 1832 would prove to be a different year altogether. One of the people that I've not mentioned yet is James Bowie. Bowie, famous for the Bowie knife, moved to Texas from Louisiana in 1830. In the fall of 1830, 
Bowie renounced his American citizenship and became a Mexican citizen after promising he would help to establish some textile mills in the region. Soon, Bowie would own upwards of 700,000 acres of land, which he would use for speculation. Further, in the spring of 1831, he ended up marrying 19-year-old Maria Ursula de Veramendi, his business partner's daughter. Claiming his net worth to be about $230,000, or the equivalent of $5 million today, he promised his new wife a dowry of $345,000 to be paid in cash or property within a period of two years. Oh, and he also claimed that he was 30, but he was actually 35. He and his wife would have two children, but unfortunately in September of 1833, his wife, her parents, and their two children ended up dying in a cholera outbreak. Now by this point, Bowie had a sterling reputation in the province for bravery and skill in battle. His reputation was high amongst both Mexicans and Americans in Texas, especially since he tended to keep out of the numerous political controversies which plagued the province in the early 1830s. Bowie, at this point, had a Mexican wife, a Mexican father-in-law who had become the governor, and large land holdings under Mexican law. Thus, he had very little incentive to go against the status quo. However, by the summer of 1832, there were enough troublemakers in the region to make up for those who wanted to keep the status quo. Settlers in the area of Nacogdoches were ordered by the Mexican commander there to surrender their weapons. This would put the settlers at risk from both Indians and hunger, as many people still hunted for their food. So the settlers organized a militia to resist the order. Further, they sent out word in every direction that despotism had arrived in the form of the Mexican army and must be resisted. At this point, Mexico itself was in the middle of a struggle between centralists and federalists. This allowed the Texas militiamen to essentially cloak their resistance movement in the philosophy of federalism. When the colonel, José de las Piedras, refused to withdraw his order, fighting erupted. Stephen Austin, the leader of Anglo-Texas, if you will, naturally viewed these events with alarm. Knowing Bowie by reputation as someone who could command respect and act decisively, Austin urged Bowie to go to Nacogdoches and prevent a revolution from breaking out. Bowie did go to the town, but instead of getting both sides to calm down, his presence actually led to the capture of the colonel and the conversion, in mass of the Mexican troops under the command of Piedras. The capture of the colonel and the Mexican regiment by a force of American militia, one that was greatly outnumbered, only added to Bowie's reputation. Further, it identified him with the insurgency in Texas, perhaps against his will. As for Austin, he was left trying to figure out what all of this meant for the future of Texas. Now, in Mexico, politics was, as was typical of the 1820s and 30s, chaotic at best. The centralist rise to power had signaled that Mexico had moved to the right. But, as usual, the pendulum eventually swung back to the left when General Bustamante was expelled and the Federalists took control of the government in Mexico City. The so-called summer coup was led by one Antonio López de Santa Ana. The problem here was that Santa Ana was no liberal. I would argue he actually had no ideology at all. His ideology was power, his personal power and aggrandizement. Now, the rise to power of Santa Ana would, for a time, make strange bedfellows out of te militant Texans and the dictator. In Texas, militants began to challenge Mexican governmental authorities. Embracing the new federal cause championed by Santa Ana, 
military order along the northern border of Texas was in a crisis. As militant Texans challenged customs collectors at Galveston Island and military officials at Fort Anahuac, General Teran appealed to Austin to help restore order. Austin, for his part, did absolutely nothing. So things were dissolving quickly for the Centralists. Anglo militants had been able to force Mexican troops to retire, and soon the Federalists, Federals cha- captured the town of Tampico, a supply base for Teran's forces. Rushing south to repair the situation, he soon realized all was lost, and fell into a deep depression. Unable to see his country fractured and lawless, Teran dressed himself in his finest uniform. He walked out to the front of an old church outside of Tampico, unsheathed his sword, and fell on it. An honorable man, end for an honorable man. The situation on the ground in Texas in late 1832 was thus. Mexican troops loyal to the centralist cause began to abandon the region, and Anglos in Texas fell into one of two groups. They were either in the moderate camp, those who wanted to compromise, or the militant camp, those who wanted to exploit the turmoil. In December, Sam Houston, one-time governor of the state of Tennessee and currently a frontier vagabond, crossed the border into Texas and threw in with the militants. Those who were attempting to wrest Texas from Mexico, called by American abolitionist and traveler in the region at the time, Benjamin Lundy, quote, the great conspiracy, end quote, possessed one major advantage. Law and order disappeared in 1832 as the debate between the Centralists and the Federalists spread to every province in the country. The situation encouraged the Texans to challenge the few Mexican political institutions that existed in the region, even if they never had been oppressed. Eventually, revolutionary violence grew, and as Texas became a land of chaos, the Texans embraced a culture of violence, one where violent acts became accepted moral actions. The Wacos and the Tawakani Wichitas had been amongst the first victims of this violence, but soon there would be more. This brings us back to Sam Houston. What was this former governor and friend of President Andrew Jackson doing in Texas? He was, supposedly, surveying the Indian tribes there, but he was under the impression that his mission was of a different nature. In his mind, there would be fighting in Texas soon, and the fighting would not be with the Indians. He noted that while Mexico's grip on the state was loosening, Americans were crossing the border and illegally entering Mexican territory by the thousands. Like many other Southerners, Houston paired honor with violence. This idea of honor and violence was especially prevalent amongst the Scotch-Irish, whom we discussed in our first season, specifically episode 9. When it comes to Houston, he was a politician first and an ideologue second. He certainly paired the Scotch-Irish creed of using violence to take from those who were weaker, especially Indians. At the same time, he was willing to take their land, he was also willing to marry Indian women, which he did prior to coming to Texas. Now, his Indian wife actually refused to accompany him, and the marriage went by the wayside. I should note, for what it's worth, he was never married to her in a church. Instead, he married um, using a Cherokee ceremony. Now, someone we've not mentioned in a while um, is Stephen F. Austin. Just briefly, I think, a few pages back. He was essentially a moderate, still hoping for some sort of compromise with Mexico. Austin continued to have dialogue with General Teran throughout the first half of 1832, but they respectfully disagreed on the best course of action for Texas when news of the general's death arrived. The unfortunate suicide of General Teran must have 
increased Austin's hope, uh, hopes, and the removal of General Bustamante from power in Mexico City would certainly have given him great hopes of what the future held for Texas. So, what did he hope for? First, for Texas to become a separate political entity within the Mexican federal system. Secession from the state of Coahuila is essentially what he wanted. This would then allow for the creation of a state legislature in Texas that was dominated by Anglos. Further, because of that Anglo dominance, they could then create a new Texas, one that was similar perhaps to, say, Georgia or Alabama, complete with slavery, which was needed for cotton farming. Lastly, he wanted the law against Anglo immigration rescinded. He argued that Mexico would benefit by opening its borders to men and women of good, quote, reputation and industry, end quote. On this account, he was not alone. Many Tejanos actually agreed with him. Austin felt that Americanizing Texas would benefit everyone. This feeling was common amongst many, whether they were Anglo or Tejano. The chaotic political situation in Mexico, the government's inability to deal effectively with Indian tribes like the Comanche and the Apache, meant things would have come to a head at some point, and that point was now. In 1833, Austin made his way to Mexico City to deliver in person a petition from the San Felipe Convention, which called for statehood for Texas separate from Coahuila. It was a bad year in the region for cholera, and Austin experienced at, which Austin experienced at the Rio Grande. Remember, I mentioned earlier that David Bowie or James Bowie's uh, wife, his kids, his in-laws, all of them had were going to die from cholera as well in 1833. Being laid low himself for a while. Austin did recover, but he figured that it was best to change plans and instead take uh, a boat south. Mexico City itself was also suffering from the cholera outbreak. Austin noted that at least 18,000 people died from the disease. In the capital, Austin pressed for statehood. His argument based on several points. Okay, um, One, the people of Texas wanted to govern themselves. His point was that the people of Texas had an identity separate from that of the Mexicans, seeing as how many settlers were from the United States. And if I can just interject here, I doubt that was the smartest point to make. If there was anything likely to upset the Mexican authorities, this was probably it. Further, he argued in line with an 1824 law, which envisioned Texas as a separate state within the Mexican federal system. Now, unlike the previous point, um, I feel this was a much better one to argue. His fourth point was the idea that stronger ties would develop between the people of Texas and the central authority. And finally, the idea that all people have the right to save themselves from anarchy and chaos. On this last point, Austin was essentially arguing that the people of Texas were likely to take matters into their own hands. So why not approve of it and work with the local authorities rather than try and fight the inevitable? Indeed, at one point, Austin admitted that he told the vice president, quote, Texas must be made a state, end quote, or she would do it herself. Not the way I would have recommended Austin try and argue his point, and Austin would soon discover that he had, indeed, upset the Mexican authorities. Now, in the meantime, he was also attempting to mollify the radicals back home. He wrote back home, and he noted that he felt Texas would become a state within the Mexican Confederation in due course. But instead of going down the road of provocation, he asked his fellow Texians to restrain themselves, and in no way should they talk of independence. Instead, he urged them, when talking of statehood, 
he said they should do so within the confines of the Mexican Confederation. Now, the problem for Austin was Mexican officials doubted his sincerity. Why? Because they were reading some, if not all, of his letters that he was sending home. In one of those letters, Austin urged local leaders in San Antonio to coordinate with other towns in Texas to move unilaterally towards statehood. Urging his fellow Texans to move towards sedition was not the way to gain the cooperation of the Mexican federal government, to say the least. The problem for Austin was that not all of the members of the San Antonio Council saw statehood for Texas, even within the Mexican constitutional framework, as something to be viewed positively. So a copy of his letter was forwarded to state leaders in Coahuila, and they, delighted to see incriminating evidence against Austin, forwarded it to Mexico City. Now this, of course, would take some time, and Austin made use of the time that he had, of course all the while unaware of the fact that his letter was being forwarded to the capital. He was able to get the federal government to repeal its ban on American immigration into Texas, after which he headed back home. This time he took the land route and made a major mistake. He rode hard to catch up to the recently appointed general for the northern district, Pedro Lemus. Much to his surprise, the general arrested him. Lemus explained he had orders for Austin's arrest and returned to the capital to answer charges brought against him by the state of Coahuila y Texas. Austin would spend the next several months in jail without being told what exactly he was charged with. In the spring, he did get a glimmer of hope. Santa Ana had been elected president, but the chances of that being good for Austin were slim. By late in May, the president had dismissed Congress and began to rule as a dictator. Having said that, it is easy to see why Austin found hope in the rise to power of Santa Ana. First, the president eased his, his imprisonment, giving him the run of the prison, a prison which had stood since the days of the Inquisition. Second, the acting president, Gomez Frias, and the man uh, Austin felt was responsible for the situation, was also dismissed by Santa Ana. So what exactly is going on in Mexico at this point? By now, Santa Ana had moved against the president, Anastasio Bustamante. Attempting to take advantage of the situation, Texians took up arms. By late in the summer, all Mexican troops had left the eastern portion of the state. Drunk on success, the Texans had or held two conventions to try and persuade federal authorities in Mexico City to weaken the laws of 1830. Some sections of the law were repealed and amended even increasing the number of representatives in the state legislature. Even Stephen Austin himself was satisfied, noting that everything the Anglo-Texans had complained about had finally been fixed. While many in the northern regions, including Texas, had thought Santa Ana was an ally, they were mistaken. Once in power, Santa Ana showed himself to be a centrist. He had the Constitution of 1824 repealed, and all state legislatures were dismissed, as were the state militias. It really should have been fairly obvious. Santa Ana had been a military man for all of his adult life. He was now in charge of the nation. The last thing he was going to accept would be disobedience from those he saw as lower than himself. The Federalists were appalled by Santa Ana's actions, and they took up arms against him and his regime. The rebellion, which was centered in Zacatecas, was brutally put down, and the city itself was pillaged by federal troops. As these events unfolded, the people in Texas took note. First, they refused to dissolve the legislature, and a prominent Tejano, Juan Seguin, raised a militia company to assist the governor. The problem for Mexico was twofold. 
First, the government was not prepared to fight a civil war. However, the federal government in Mexico City could not simply allow the unrest in Texas to continue, or its own legitimacy would be questioned. Furthermore, if the chaos continued, the influence of the United States in Texas was likely to spread, and other northern territories would be threatened. By 1835, the tensions were high. An Santa Ana made another mistake. In the fall, he sent General Perfecto de Cos, his brother-in-law, to lead 500 soldiers in an attempt to put down any potential for a rebellion. They landed on September 20, 1835. Austin responded by calling on all municipalities in the territory to raise militias to defend themselves. What Santa Ana had done was to finally light the fuse of what was a powder keg of the Mexican government's own making. Had he shown some patience and some diplomacy, the situation could have been salvaged. Instead, the revolution in Texas had begun. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds as far as the Revolutionary War in Texas is concerned, but I do want to hit on a few points. First, by late in 1835, although the Mexicans weren't really prepared to deal with the Civil War, they were able to assemble 6,000 soldiers and have them start marching north. Unfortunately for these soldiers, there were problems from the outset. First, there weren't enough mules to transport all of the supplies needed. Secondly, the winter of 1835-36 would be brutal by Texas standards, and by February it was estimated that over a foot of snow fell. Again, for Texas, this is a lot of snow. Temperatures were at record lows, and soldiers coming up from Mexico were ill-prepared for the harsh winter conditions. Many of them ended up dying from exposure, while others contracted dysentery. Other soldiers were picked off by Comanche when they fell behind. Eventually, the Mexican force made its way to San Antonio and the Alamo. The Texans gathered there were also unprepared for what was coming. They attempted to find what supplies they could, and then fell back to the Alamo. Later that day, February 23rd, over 1,000 Mexican soldiers occupied Bayar, raising a blood-red flag, which signified no quarter would be given. For the next two weeks, the Alamo would be besieged. There were a couple of skirmishes, but nothing of significance, and casualties were minimal. William Travis, a colonel in the Texas arm, or Texan Army, took over for James Bowie when the latter fell ill. On February 24, 1836, Travis wrote a letter addressed, quote, to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, end quote. In it, he said he would never surrender or retreat. He called on the readers of the letter to come to the aid of the Texans as soon as possible. He ended the letter with the words, victory or death. The letter would gain fame in time, but in the interim, the defenders were reinforced by less than 100 men. On the morning of March 6, 1836, the Mexican army advanced. The defenders were able to withstand two attacks, but the third attack did the trick, and the Alamo was taken. Somewhere between five um, to seven defenders surrendered, but all were quickly executed as traitors. Witnesses said that anywhere from 200 to 250 Texans died, and historians agree that about 600 Mexicans were either killed or wounded. Thus, about one-third of the Mexican army was a casualty, a tremendous casualty rate by anyone's standards. Now, what was the impact of the battle? Uh, militarily speaking, it was insignificant. However, it did buy time for the Convention of 1836 to convene and to declare Texas independence on March 2nd. As for the Mexican army, it still outnumbered the Texan army by more than 5 to 1. Santa Ana himself thought that knowledge of the events of the Alamo, as well as the understanding that they were significantly outnumbered, would mean the resistance would die out. 
Instead, news of the defeat had the opposite effect, and now men flocked to join the Texan army. On April 21st, the Texians attacked Santa Ana, and in about 18 minutes, the Battle of San Jacinto was over. The Texans had supposedly cried, remember the Alamo. The next day, April 22nd, the Texans captured Santa Ana himself and forced him to order his troops out of Texas. Texas was free of Mexican control, and to some extent, the new republic was legitimized. Over the next decade or so, um, we would see sort of a cold war between Texas and Mexico. Times were tough in not only Texas, but also the United States and even in Mexico. The effects of the Panic of 1837 spilled across the border and into the Lone Star Republic. As historian H.W. Brands points out in his book, Lone Star Nation, the economic difficulties the Texans were going through made it difficult to create the institutions of government and society the new nation required. According to Brands, Texas finance was a bad joke. Prior to the panic, banknotes issued in Louisiana and Mississippi circulated in Texas, and what specie currency there was came in from the United States as well. The problem here was the specie, gold and silver coins, was made even more rare in Texas thanks to the principle, a principle in economics known as Gresham's Law. This law states that bad money chases the good money out of the economy. What they mean by this is, in a situation where you have two forms of money in circulation, in this instance paper money and specie, the more valuable commodity, gold and silver, disappears from circulation as people hoard it, and instead they use the cheaper money to make their purchases. To make things worse, the Panic of 1837 caused the banks which had issued the paper currency to collapse, and Texans were forced to barter for goods and services, because that paper currency was essentially worthless now. At one point in Texas, um, horses, yes, horses were considered legal tender. Of course, the problem here is that native peoples tended to raid and steal horses, so even horses as a currency became scarce. You know, another problem was the aforementioned Cold War state that existed between Texas and Mexico. The latter refused to recognize Texas' independence, arguing Santa Ana was forced to sign the treaty at gunpoint. Thus, the treaty was null and void. I agree with that assessment. Further, because of this, Texas had to remain prepared for war to break out at any moment, and this was a drain on the treasury such as it existed. Another problem that Brands mentions is the fact that many of the leaders of Texas, and many if not all of the people in the state, had an inherent distrust of bankers. To complicate this situation, again we're referring to um, Brand's work here, um, was the fact that Jackson killed the second bank of the United States, and Texas was not about to create its own central bank. Now I would disagree with Brand's on this point. The lack of a central bank was not necessarily a problem. Had the Department of the Treasury issued legitimate specie currency and not attempted to then inflate that currency, the economy would most likely have stabilized. The problem in the United States was not the fact that Jackson killed the central bank. It was that he then took the government's money and deposited, deposited it into numerous banks referred to as pet banks. Those banks then inflated the paper currency they issued, which killed the economy. Now, I know this is a bit complicated, and I'm not too sure I've explained it thoroughly, but rest assured, we'll look at this topic in depth um, during Season 3, as you need to understand inflation and banking and the Federal Reserve, and which is a central bank, to understand the Great Depression and its causes. Anyway, for now, Texas was independent to some extent. But things were not going well, and under Jackson, the United States made it known they were not going to annex Texas. They had no desires 
to go to war to try and gain Texas at this point. Okay, so that is all for this episode. Our next episode for Season 2 will be out um, February 1st at the latest. I am, as we speak, actually working on that episode, which is on slavery, and I'm also working on the miniseries for the California Gold Rush. It might turn out to be just one bonus episode or several. Right now, it's really hard to say, as I'm still reading and thinking about how best to tackle it. But whatever happens, an episode will be out in um, oh, around January 20th or so. So there's plenty of history goodness coming your way. I hope you've enjoyed this one, and if that is the case, feel free to join the email list so that you can get updates about the show. Until next time, good day. <laughs>